Do you have a story to tell? Here at Rider on the Road, it's the journey that matters. Regardless of where you are on your riding journey, Rider on the Road will inspire you to take your dreams and make them happen. So sit back and enjoy the show as Melinda brings you guests who know what it's like to go it alone and who are willing to reach out to the rest of us by sharing their stories. Authors, publishers, entrepreneurs, people at all stages of the riding journey, just like you and me. It's time, dear listeners, to answer the question for yourselves. Do you have a story to tell? Welcome to another episode of Writer on the Road. Today I've got with me the beautiful, beautiful, beautiful Claire Connolly and she is just glowing and healthy and smiling and this is going up on YouTube so you can actually look at Claire and, and listen to her at the same time which is really, really exciting. I've just come in from walking the dogs, Claire, so I'm a bit of a mess. Good morning to you. Good morning. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Uh, Now, Claire and I have had a little bit of a chat before the podcast and I've forewarned her about what we're going to do to her today and she's still smiling. So we're in there with a chance, everyone, to really find out some great information today. Um, But I'm going to start, Claire, and I've warned her I'm going to do this because this is something that I've always wanted to do, everyone. I've always wanted to read this paragraph and I've always wanted to read it in the first person, I, so that it was all about me. Unfortunately, I'm reading it all about Claire, which is great for Claire. not so good for me. So Claire, I'm going to just give you this beautiful introduction. In not quite three years, uh, I have had more than 10 number one bestsellers on the Amazon.com and uh, Amazon.com UK romance erotica charts. I've been in the top 15 exclusive authors across all genres for more than 20 months in the UK and in the top 100 in the States on their Amazon stores. I've had an iTunes number two bestseller, number one on the romance charts. I've signed a multi-book deal with Harlequin, Mills and Boone, and I'm now heading towards a million digital sales in my indie titles alone. Claire, you have got such a story to share with us today. Um, Congratulations, first and foremost. Thank you. Thank you. And tell us, tell us about all that excitement. I'm assuming, let's start at the end. Let's hear about that Harlequin, Mills and Boone uh, contract that you've got. Okay, so that's actually really, I suppose, the beginning. I I wrote my first full manuscript at 15 and submitted it to Harlequin. And as we were saying before the podcast, it was back in the days where you would, you know, print out a big chunk of words and post it off and wait forever. Um, and I was rejected pretty summarily. And uh, it was, it's terrible. I've still got that manuscript. But it has always been what I want to do to write for Harlequin. So even my indie journey came out of uh, the fact that I was attempting to write for Harlequin and had been rejected in the early days. Yeah, and rejected no more. I I believe you have made your point, and everyone knows that <laughs> I'm a rampant indie, so I'm I'm very keen to hear your indie journey. Um, but of course, I and um, as you said, other people are curious too. And again, everybody, I've got this back to front, but let's go to the good bits first. What made someone <laughs> who is so very successful as an indie author go hybrid? And I know a lot of people do, and it, and it's a topic that really interests me. Yeah, sure. So primarily because I've always wanted to write for Harlequin. So even though I think that the indie journey is amazing and I'll never give that up, I love what I do there and I love that the author, the readers that I've connected with, um, but I have just always wanted to work for Harlequin or write for Harlequin rather and I can do that. You know, I'm I'm quite fortunate in that I write quite quickly. I have a good output. I write full time. So I should be able to meet my Harlequin commitments as well as my self-publishing. Wow. How exciting is that, everybody? This is what we all aspire to. Uh, we know that it happens. And we know from our previous interviews, everyone, that Harlequin really looks after its authors. And I think, especially here in Australia... Everybody I speak to who writes for Harlequin and the Mirror Line and all those kinds of things, everyone's really happy. We seem to be spoiled mm. over here with with how they look after us. Absolutely. I mean, that's the other thing. I have learned so much. I've submitted, I think, I've had three books accepted and the fourth one is with my editor now. So that's not a lot really in terms of what I've written in indie, but what I've learned working with Megan Haslam, who's my editor, and Flo Nicole, uh, who I'm working with on the Dare line, has just been amazing. And they're lovely. They're just the nicest people and they love romance. You know, it's I get emails from them and they just make my day. It's, so it's been a really fulfilling experience already. Yeah. I remember I had um, Flo Nicole 
lined up to come on the podcast, everybody, and then she had to go back and ask permission from Harlequin and then she never got back to me, so I'm assuming they said ah. no. I might try again. <laughs> How <laughs> interesting. Yeah, um, because I'm sure she'd have some stories to tell as well. Uh, yeah. Look, that's a really great place for us to really get serious. What kinds of things have you learned since you've been with them? Because as I said, you, you sold a million books before you came on board with Harlequin. I would have said that there was nothing more to teach you and we were hoping that you'd teach us. Um, but you're still learning, always learning. What are some oh, of the big things you've, yeah, what are some of the big things you've taken away? Um, oh, that's a really good question. Just, I guess, um, it's hard to say because I wouldn't have said that anything was lacking from my indie work, but certainly in terms of writing for Harlequin, each line has got quite a specific style. So Harlequin presents that I write for, um, I started writing what I would have considered pretty squarely Harlequin presents, but over the years I went away from that just a little bit, but enough because I had the freedom to with indie writing. Um, and then coming back and writing for Harlequin Presents, I've just tightened up and, and sort of um, made sure that what I'm writing really fits the premise of the Harlequin Presents lines. So, um, you know, your alpha hero and and um, in particular working towards one significant and heart-stopping black moment, whereas in my indie books I think I'd got into the habit of sort of peppering a few black moments in throughout. Uh, and I think with Harlequin the way that I have ended up writing them is always moving towards one big black moment. Yeah, and, that, and that's something that's really important, everybody, and you need the professional eyes of an editor to, to oh. guide that process. And whether you're indie or not, you're, I'm assuming you have um, all 43 novels, everybody, um, that this lady has got out, I'm assuming you had an editor for those as well. Yeah, for most of them, not for the first ones, and they're pretty – I look back at those, and they still sell. And so I do need to get those retrospectively edited because I sort of curl my toes when I think. Although with that being said, my first book that I released is one of my favourites. The story was just uh, so compelling and so um, full of emotion that I think that people will overlook the occasional typo so long as the story is good. Yeah, and I was yeah. listening to a podcast on the self-publishing formula only yesterday and they were interviewing a guy who is a prolific short story writer and if I was good I'd remember his name but it was yesterday and I can't. Um, but he was very liberal in accepting mistakes in his books but the podcast formula guys pulled him a little bit into line and said, well, mm. really? Um, we can do better than that and and I agree with you we can do better than that it's worth going through mm. the editing process and everyone absolutely right, yeah right from the beginning but it's interesting that you've taken it one step further now and you've got the Harlequin editors who mm. who are very specific and very professional in what they want which is I'm guessing benefiting your stories yeah definitely so my debut Harlequin novel comes out in July and I absolutely love it. I mean, I, I really do love everything I write. And that's something I would say too. I think sometimes people can fall into the trap, especially as indies to push out books that they're not necessarily a hundred percent happy with. And I think that's the real downside of self-publishing is that there can be a glut of books that probably shouldn't be out there, but that the ones that work and that are well written will rise to the top in that market. You know, that's um, that's sort of the nature of the beast. But I can say genuinely that every book I've put out, so I write quite quickly, but then I leave them for a good three to six months before I go back and edit them and release them. Um, so when I get them up there, I'm I'm always thrilled with the package or I wouldn't put them out. Yeah. And look, so professional, indie. you say you write quite quickly. Now you started this in or your latest journey in 2014. Mm-hmm. That's right. Now, guys, I've got to tell you this, 43 no novels and six anthologies. We'll talk about the anthologies in a moment. But that is a huge output. Um, and those novels are all around the 50,000K mark or 50,000 mark, aren't they? Mm -hmm. So That's right. You better tell us. You better spill right now. How, how many words a day do you write? <laughs> you know, everybody's different. For me, because I have a six and a four-year-old, and so when I started – my started writing in earnest. I think my little girl might have been six or nine months old, really little. And I 
I had them at the point where they were napping at the same time every day. So I knew I had a very limited time to write. So I would structure my whole day around getting ready to write as effectively as I could in the small window I had. And so many thousands of words were written with my little girl like a koala on my chest while I kind of typed out because she's never been a good sleeper, whereas my son would give me, you know, three hours. Um, but that that mentality has held even as I've got a bit more time now. Um, so I generally, I, I, and I read this great uh, blog post on Valerie Path's blog about how we're mo at our most creatively effective before we fall asleep, right before we fall asleep and right after we've woken up. And without knowing it, I, that's what I sort of do. So I go to bed and always just make some quick notes about what I'm going to do the next morning. Then I wake up and I tend to write 2,000 words before anyone else has woken up in the house. So I know that if I can't get back to do it again, uh, to work at all that day, I've got at least 2,000 words down. Yeah. So there's the secret, everybody. 2,000 words before the house wakes up. Now, Claire's being a little bit generous with herself here because your children are still very young. Uh, yeah, well, six and four, nearly five. So they're also quite close in age. <laughs> so it, it was sort of a chaotic, uh, busy time. But I'd always wanted to write. And, you know, and having little kids at home is no holiday. You know, it's it was busy and it was stressful. But at the same time, I knew that if I didn't if I didn't tick this box while I had the opportunity to at least be at home, then it, it would become increasingly difficult once I went back to my old job, which I loved, you know, and I was looking forward to getting back to it, but it would have made the time very scarce to write. Yeah. I, I, hats off to people who work full time and juggle families and still carve out the time to write. That just is amazing. Yeah. I'm assuming you're not going back to work now? No, well, this is my work now. Yeah. <laughs> and my, and your day job is. Yeah, I used to liken um, staying home with my young children and everybody knows how much I adore them because I prattle on about them all the time. But I always liken yeah. it to Gwen Harwood's poem um, there where she's sitting on the park bench and it's there sucking my soul. <laughs> <laughs> and I always, anyone who thinks staying home, being a staying home mother is easy is, is so very, very wrong because it's oh. all about them. It's all about them. And, and as you say, you know, I adore my children and I would, all the cliches, you know, I would give my life for them, you know, and they're amazing, but they're full on. And, and it's hard. And I, I did find it quite, um, deadening at times because it's the days are really long and you know people give you all those really hackneyed phrases like the what is it the days are uh, the the days are long but the years are short and yet it's so true I find myself saying that to my friends with small children now it's like it goes so fast yeah and I've got what of mine 17 and 15 and they're about to fly the coop well I wish they would fly ah. the coop so I can go off in my caravan but they keep hanging around <laughs> <laughs> that's that's mean isn't it I I do love you guys no. uh, yeah <laughs> No, but the writing, finding the time to write is, uh, I guess I got the timing right in terms of having the break from my career to be at home with the kids. And had it not proven successful, I would have had to find a way to juggle writing with working with children. Because as you know, it's a compulsion. Like you said, you just, you keep coming back to it because it's not an option. If you're a writer, you write. Yeah. And I think everybody, look, we can stop the interview now because I think that statement is something that we forget. If you're a writer, you write. Now, I'm putting out a 30-day blog thing starting tomorrow and my opening sentences are, it's as easy and as hard as that. If you're mm. a writer, you write. Um, mm. But getting to it and doing it and getting those 2,000 words out at the start of the day you must almost walk through walk through the rest of the day with a clear conscience knowing you've got it behind you. Well, that's the theory, but the the problem I have is I am a very compulsive person. So, and I find when I'm in a book, uh, the characters become so real to me and their story becomes so real that I write like I read. I'm a real fast reader. I'll read a book in a sitting. And so and I'm I am fortunate that my husband is so patient with this because when I'm writing something, I will write potentially 14,000 words in a day and then I'll go to sleep and then I'll start and I'll do another 10, you know. And so I I can write 50,000 words in five days because it overtakes me. And that's a burden. Like I know that that sounds really amazing, but it does mean I put 
I feel like that's my real world for that time and I'm kind of ghosting through everything else. And then it's this massive unshackling and relief when I can say, the end, I'm back. And then out, I've birthed it. <laughs> and the children are sitting at her feet making themselves cheese sandwiches um, to survive yes. the time. <laughs> Very self-sufficient. <laughs> you can imagine what's going to happen when they're teenagers, everybody. They're going to wait till mummy sinks into her 50,000 words and there will be okay. hell to pay. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah, the delicious potential. I, I can't wait to have you back. <laughs> Um, now, your first story was called The Italian Billionaire's Betrayal. What a beautiful, um, delicious title. Thank you. Yeah, tell, tell us about it. Okay, so <clears throat> that is oh, where to start. So Megan is my heroine and she's a really sassy English doctor who has the misfortune of sharing a flat with a, a ruggedly handsome Italian chap called Pietro and Pietro is the black sheep of his family and it's his grandfather's 80th birthday coming up and he asks her to come to Italy to and pretend to be his girlfriend because he thinks someone like Megan on his arm will be sure to impress his family who aren't at all impressed by him. She goes to Italy with him because she's that kind of person who she loves him and she's a really loyal, caring friend. And in an uncharacteristic night of sort of letting her hair down and letting loose, has a one night stand with an Italian man called Matteo. Fast forward 24 hours, arrives at the grandfather's villa and the one night stand is Pietro's older brother who decides that the only way to save his younger brother Pietro from this obviously uh, deceiving and conniving and, um, you know, ne'er-do-well woman is to seduce her into his bed. That's so it's it. full of all those mistaken premises and she's really a good, kind person who, uh, you know, and I love those. I love the mistaken identity sort of trope. Yeah, and I love how the older brother always comes in and he's very stern and he always, always um, gets the girl in the end and it turns out to be the right decision because the younger, the younger brother really doesn't have much moral background. Well, no, and, and in that one, Pietro is a bit of a, a weakling and, and definitely um, morally questionable. You know, she Megan does ask him to clear it all up and he won't because he, for the first time ever, has brought home someone who his family really like and, you know, everything's going swimmingly for him and so he's quite selfish and um, faced with the choice of letting down her longtime friend or going after what she wants, she chooses to be a good friend. Yeah, I think we'll link... Um this book in our podcast guys to Amazon um, because I'm actually going to go and buy it. I'm, I'm quite hooked just with you telling me about it. I love, I used to love those kinds of stories. Um, and I know you said you still read and I'm thinking, I don't even know how you do that. I buy the books and I look at them and I, I bought Amy Andrews. You mentioned her earlier, her footballer series. I think I've got oh, yeah. like, however many she's written now and they're sitting there and they smile at me every morning and I go, oh, I'm next you're on the list next but it never happens uh now let's fast forward to your latest novel um which is coming out as you said in july with harlequin presents is it mm -hmm. that's um, right yeah yes. what's that one about uh so that is um oh it's a beautiful story it's um you know it's it's about second chances and having walked away from um from the relationship to keep her family happy, he comes back and, you know, he was never good enough for her, so he's gone out and proved himself and now her family have hit hard times and he comes back with an indecent proposition. Um, but it's it's got a lot of emotional heart. My, my heroine sister, Libby, actually died uh, and it destroyed the family, uh, you know, when she was a teenager and she was the older sister and, and really the golden girl. And so it... It's also about how you – I think sacrifice is sort of a long-running theme in my books. Nothing's ever perfect. Nothing's ever black and white and easy. And she gave up what she really wanted because she it was more important to her not to fracture her family and to keep the peace and um, ultimately, you know, the, the position that the parents put her in by uh, by shutting down the relationship. Yeah, and they're all values-driven, aren't they? Um, and that's why we keep reading romance novels, although we've read, as you said, a million of them. We go back for more and more because mm. uh, our heroines, you talked about alpha males at the very beginning, but our females mm. are pretty damn strong nowadays, aren't they? 
They are, and that's that's the balance to strike because even when I, I never like it if a heroine is, oh, you can write a heroine that life happens to, you know, where because because life does happen to us. But I also want to know that my heroines have cho- tried their hardest to to climb out of whatever pit they've fallen into. You know, I don't, I'm not really a fan of the damsel in distress trope, and I think that's gone out of vogue. You know, um, and I have written a few books, particularly chic books, where because of circumstances, maybe she's gotten into a situation that she wouldn't otherwise. But I always make it clear that that she had agency over that. You know, I think that's really important. And to make them sassy, even when their back's against a wall. Yeah. Now, you've you've written your first book, um, The Italian Whatever, in Billionaire's Betrayal in 2014. You've got your new one Correct. out now. In a very short period of time, tell us your learning journey from book one to book 44. Okay, um, definitely confidence. So I remember when I first wrote, it, and the speed that comes with that, I used to think it was almost a fluke when you wrote a book and finished it. Now I know that I can do it. And I, I okay, so things I've learned uh, in category romance is to bring the reader in at, at a really interesting point. I think starting the book at the right spot is very important. Um, probably that took me five books to work out. And I think my third or fourth book I actually did go back and rewrite not once it was published but in the editorial phase I scrapped the first three chapters and started it again because I just think it's so important to bring them in make sure the conflict is really strong so if from the beginning you know why your couple can't be together and there's loads of blogs and books and that talk about this the conflict can't be something that a conversation could resolve you know it has to be um like in the italian billionaire's betrayal as an example she went and she asked her friend to be honest and so then it was an internal conflict for her of does she let her friend down who in good faith she's promised to help or does she self-serve and obviously because we want to like her she makes the right decision and and even though her friend at that point is a bit of a jerk we still respect that she's made that decision so I think that's a good conflict and his conflict of actually being attracted to his brother's girlfriend or who he thinks is his brother's girlfriend you know it's quite messy yeah, and you attended your first Romance Writers Conference in Adelaide last year and, yeah, everybody, we missed it but we'll go to the one this year. Um, well, actually, I haven't organised that. I might even miss this year as well if I don't hurry up. <laughs> uh, but now you met, I know we were talking about how you met Amy Andrews and everybody putting this pair together would be just the best, best fun. Um, so well, might... you'll get to see it if you come to Brisbane because we'll both be there. Yeah, Everyone, I might tee that up now. Um, Claire, if I can get Amy on board, can I get both of you on the podcast together? Because between you, your talents and your personalities would mesh just beautifully. Sure. Yes. Yeah, see, fine. we did it, everyone. We're, we're, we're on a roll. Um, now we've just got to convince Amy. <laughs> um, but at that Romance Writers Conference, you were an indie publisher, at that stage, you you didn't you hadn't crossed over to hybrid yet. Is that where you made the decision to do that? Yeah, I certainly hadn't been submitting to Harlequin uh, during my indie time, but it was always a long held dream. So as soon as I knew that the conference was going to be on, and it was actually about two kilometres around the corner from me, so it was an absolute no brainer to go. Um, and I registered to pitch. And if anyone is listening who's an RWA member who's contemplating pitching, or it was so nerve-wracking. I'm, I'm a really nervous person as in terms of um, having to put myself out there. And, you know, I worked in legal recruitment for years. I'm used to being on the other side of the desk and doing the interviewing. And I was just shaking in my boots, but I did it. I forced myself to pull up my big girl pants and I went. And I chose to pitch to uh, Rebecca Saunders from Hachette and Joanne Grant from Harlequin, who's, um, oh gosh, do you know, I've forgotten her title, but she's a senior acquisitions editor, I think maybe for Europe or something, something very fancy and made me shake even more. <laughs> um, but she was lovely. It was first cab off the rank and she was really uh, put me at ease and asked me to submit a full manuscript, which I did. And it happened so quickly after that. And I think that, that I would say that too, you know, you can go to the conference and be nervous and not know what's going to happen. And But if you get in front of the right person and I didn't even pitch myself very well, but if you, if you are confident in what you do, then it really, it can open such amazing doors. It's, yeah. it was honestly such a valuable experience. 
Yeah. And and I think that's that's a message that we could give to everybody. Opening amazing doors, if you don't stand up and and have a go, you you will miss out because no one knows that you're there. Um so the mm. worst thing is not not standing up in the first place, would you say? Absolutely. And I think that as an extension of that, that's what came out of my indie work. And as I've said, I I am tickled pink to be writing for Harlequin because that has been, seriously, I could die happy. Like this is my life dream to write for Harlequin. But I was never going to not get my books out there. So the indie thing gives everybody that opportunity, you know, and it's scary. And it's, I think people look at it and think that there's either that their books are going to flop or that it's a bit of a, a mystery and they don't know how to crack into it. But it's amazing, you know, and it's, if you are struggling to get published, publish it yourself. You know, let let the readers be the gatekeepers and you will get the editorial feedback via Amazon one star reviews and whatever and take the read them and take it, you know, it's because that's your learning journey. But get your book out there if that's what you want to do. Yeah. And I think that is a message and some people just go on that indie journey and stay on that journey. We all have mm-hmm. our um, personal dreams and goals as well and yes everybody one day I want to get published by Harlequin as well um that's why I'm being friends with all these people I'm trying to smooth you up <laughs> oh okay that's not true um it's just that I like to talk a lot um now I want to I want to pick on that a little bit further um following your dreams is really important getting your book out there as an indie is really important there's lots of people around to help us uh to to be as professional as we can um that learning curve that uh, learning curve that learning journey is all very exciting and then stepping up to the the pit or whatever you step what do you step up to the base um plate softball yeah plate thank you you step up to the plate and and ask when you were pitching to uh joanne grant uh, mm. everybody, it's always a good idea to write these names down so that we can go along behind and use them. Um, always <laughs> read the acknowledgements section in the books because you get names and then you can pitch. Uh, but when you did do this pitch, did you tell them about your indie background or did you just rely on the strength of your current novel? No, I, and in fact, uh, the uh, so I absolutely went in and told her about my indie. I took in a couple of my indie books because some of them are available in print as well as e. And I had, I don't have any within reach, but I had these little lint chocolates made which had my book covers as wraps. So I had a gift pack for her. Um, and it turns out she actually knew who I was. So um which was I, she didn't realise until afterwards, but she was saying, why is your name so familiar? And then she, you know. Um, but I think it. the reason to tell her about my indie success was it proves that I can write and write more than one book, and I think they've got an eye to that very much. Uh, you know, forty-three books, please, Miss. You didn't. <laughs> you really did prove a point on that one. Um, and I'm going to come back to those chocolates in a minute because I am really curious. Uh, did you? And I don't want to know dollars. And well, I do, but you're not going to tell me. Um, <laughs> sorry, everyone. Uh, did did it put you in a position to negotiate more strongly for your contract? Um, no. I think that with that, the uh, Harlequin is very um, has a very standard rule of engagement. Okay, yeah, because I wondered, I wondered whether because um, I, I know a lot of indie authors go hybrid with big publishers, and it puts them in a position of strength. And I, I don't know how Harlequin works, uh, but they yeah. have a, they have a mirror line, don't they? That's their biggest line. Yep. Correct. So that's more for, uh, so the Harlequin Mills and Boom based out of London that I'm writing for is more your category. But I think uh, Harlequin Mirror is, so HarperCollins owns all of Harlequin, don't they? And they, I think the Harlequin Mirror that's based in Sydney focused on like Rachel Johns, you know, women's fiction or or not even just women's fiction, but longer form fiction yeah. and novels are you are you interested in moving in that direction or you're you're very happy with your category romance yeah no I've uh, I've actually had the good fortune as well to connect with Hayley Nash and for my longer form books uh, she's representing me so and I have had some conversation with some publishers about that but at the moment I have enough irons in the fire 
That's so exciting, child. Congratulations. It is. Thank you. I am I am actually writing the, the most amazing women's fiction. Well, I think it's the most amazing because I'm in my book and so I'm obsessed with it. Uh, but a women's fiction, which will be about 120,000 words, and it's just uh, I'm very excited about it, but I would rather write it not in contract just so that I can, you know, See where it goes, and that, and I think that's a bit of advice to everybody that I'm going I'm going to pull out of that statement is that sometimes you don't need the pressure. Sometimes you don't need to be writing to to jump through hoops and fit a particular um, style. That you've you've mm. kept that freedom to be able to explore and and test your own boundaries in, in the privacy, I guess, of your own writing room. But um, I did some very quick maths because I'm such a great maths teacher and I worked out 120,000 words at 14,000 words a day. You'll have it done in a couple of weeks. <laughs> yeah, I just have to squeeze it in. So it's my weekend project. Oh. So I I have to, um, you know, the, the thing is with my Harlequin uh, commitments is that the release schedule is amazing. Like I've, I've got a book out in July, then December, then February, then I think April with them. So, and I also am quite anxious not to let my indie side drop. So within that I have to squeeze in or I'm, I have some novels to squeeze into release. So I um, have to find the time that suits, yeah, to do that. Sounds very much like Amy Andrews, everybody. These girls are peas of a pod because I think her schedule is just as rigorous. Uh, now, we haven't even touched on the indie side of things. It's because I, what I love so much is is um, the business side of indie writing and finding out what mm. you have to do with newsletters and getting your books up. Um, I noticed you talked about ebooks and print and all, all those kinds of things as well. Uh, there's too much, way too much here for one interview, child. Um, I'm just going to have to have you back again and again. Um, because <laughs> Anytime. The really important thing that I want to know about is these um, lint chocolates. Ah, lint <laughs> chocolates. So they are, um, oh, they're amazing. So they're little tiny, I think 200 gram lint bars that just have the book cover wraps. They're beautiful. Yeah, Great they business have... card, an edible business card. Yeah, how, look, I want to make some. Um, how do I go about it? Who, who did you contact uh, and who came up with this idea? I can, well, I Googled it and I found a company in Melbourne. Now, oh, gosh, I should be able to give them a plug and I can't remember their name. Um, oh, hang on. Let me just have a look. It's on. all right. We'll put, them, we'll put it I'll in the show to, notes. Yes, yes, I'll let you know. But they, they're amazing. So I actually needed some done in a hurry and they did them, I think, a three-day turnaround. So, yeah, everybody, yeah. I would love to give away a box of lint chocolates with my book covers wrapped around it, but it would just have to be the one book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah. Whereas you can have you can have an assortment. You, you can have an assorted box because you've got so many. Um, I'm going to keep moving. I'm sorry, everybody, that we're rushing, but this woman has has too much going on in her life. Um, I blame you, Claire. It's all your fault. Uh, six anthologies. Tell me about those. Well, the anthologies are basically, um, you know, you spoke about the business side of indie publishing and there are so many ways to go about it. So I started off Amazon exclusive, which is, uh, I'm going to assume that you and your listeners don't know, even though I'm sure you do. Um, Amazon exclusive basically lets you um, go into their Kindle Unlimited lending library, which means basically like Netflix, people pay, pay, say, I think it's a $10 to $12 subscription. And for that, they can download any titles that are in the library up to, say, 10 on their device at any one time. Anyway, I made the decision to go into the lending library, which was a really good decision for me in the end. I think romance readers are very voracious and so they sort of chew through content very quickly. Um, but for people who would prefer to buy the books, I thought what I'll do is I'll take four of my books, put them into one and sell that for $2.99. So it's actually cheaper than you could buy four of the books. And the way Amazon works with their royalty rate is it was a, a better royalty rate for me anyway if people bought the compendium than if they bought them individually. And I thought it's if I find an author I love and I'm going away on holiday, you know, I'd rather download one anthology of their books and have it on my Kindle and off you go. Yeah. yeah. Um and look, this woman binges on everything. You know, she you write hours and hours and hours a day when you're in the mood. Um I noticed that you said she binged on my um podcast everybody, so I forgive her everything and love her dearly. Um <laughs> and so I could imagine that you would binge read as well. Um Absolutely. When, you, when you talk about anthologies, I guess you're talking really box sets, aren't you? 
Correct. And so I, I curate them quite carefully by theme. So what I want to do, I, and my covers can quite clearly show what kind of book you're getting. So I've got one box set, which is Happily Ever After, and they are my books, which sit, all of my books are sort of romance erotica. You know, there's um, there are sex scenes and they're sexy, but these are the books that probably more closely sit in a bit of a sweet context. So there's that real um, sort of the Harlequin Cherish or Desire feeling. Um, then I've got ones which is, you know, Mediterranean tycoons and I've got this gorgeous buff man on the cover with you know sort of um island coastline and uh their books where as you can see you know you know what you're going to get there you can get those sexy swarthy um alpha dominating heroes and you know sunshine and you're going to feel like you've had a, a greek island holiday at the end of it um and I, and I, because I guess I'm going to assume that people who buy my anthologies might not have read anything of mine before, so I want to give them a really good journey of my books. Yeah, and I'm madly flicking through Claire's website as she's speaking, so that I could see all these covers. Um, but I'd have to click on them one by one. There's so many of them you that do. you've had to put on the front page. Um, but beautifully organised, very simple website, everybody. Um, and she's categorised, you've categorised them for us to go through and have a look at, which is really interesting as well. Do you do your own website? I do my own website and I have to do a shout out here to Samara Parrish who, a funny story, Samara and I actually went to high school together but hadn't, she was the year above me and we hadn't spoken at all. She's a writer, I think she's based out of Canberra and we reconnected at the recent RWA. I saw, I kept seeing her and thinking, I know this woman from somewhere. I know her. Sure enough, it's Samara from school. And recently I put out a call on my website, on my Facebook saying, oh, I need to do something with my website. What do I do? And there were so many great suggestions from so many people. Um, and I think it was Samara who said, try grouping your books by category because I just had them as this big you know, mm. here they are. And it, I, you're, I do have a lot of titles and it can be quite confusing or, or almost overwhelming so you don't end up even reading them properly because it's just words on a page, you know, whereas now I think broken into sections, that's quite helpful. Yeah, and, and for someone like me who who chooses the kind of romance that she likes to read, everybody, they're split into, <clears throat> excuse me, hometown hero. You've got mm -hmm. your alpha tycoons. Um, but no alpha tycoonesses. I might have to talk to you about that. Um, mm. And your steamy sheiks. I mean, how could we powerful rulers of desert kingdoms and the women who bring them to their knees? How can you resist everybody? This is real tried and true romance, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So you mean the sheik trope? Or the... Yeah, yeah. Well, all yeah. of your books, there, there's no mucking around with you. I would know what what book I was buying simply from how you've categorised it and, and the titles. And I think that's very important not to confuse your readers, isn't it? Absolutely. And that was one of the bits of advice that I gathered. So it's sort of um, when we lived in the UK, I so, which was eight years ago, I think we came back, but I wrote every day and I sort of 800 words was about all I could get out then. You know, I hadn't, I hadn't learned to be fast yet. And I... But I did a lot of research too and I read like Valerie Parve has some great writing books out, um, Stephen King, but the Valerie Parve particularly because I was always interested in writing romance. And and I guess you learn by osmosis and I read Harlequin after Harlequin after Harlequin after Harlequin and, you know, and that, that is the, the title is often just a bit a really incisive precy of what you're going to get. Yeah, and now I know we keep going back to your indie author, Look Parallels, Harlequin, because that's what you've always mm -hmm. wanted to. Um, now you talk about you write um, romance erotica. Now I know mm -hmm. Amy Andrews drew the line at erotica. She was steamy romance. So would you ah. say that you you tip over into the erotica um, in some of your books or do you do you pull back from straight erotica? And I know I know there's ways of working this out, but I haven't got a clue. I'm not even going to go there. Now, because I binge listened to your podcast, I'm probably going to misattribute this, but I think it was Amy who said that, you know, oh, was it Amy? That the, the sex scenes in romance novels happen within an emotional context. And that's where I think that I, I don't think there'd be a huge differentiation in steaminess between Amy and my books. They're not, I, I don't write, um, there are a lot of books that come under the erotica banner which are purely the sex angle and very graphic and quite gratuitously graphic in my opinion. Um, I 
think that where they come into romance erotica mainly is because in Amazon there are categories that you put them into and that's so minor contemporary romance and romance erotica. Um, and they would appeal to a reader of quite an erotic book, yeah. Yeah. Now, I know a lot about this, everybody, because I just check this out all the time. Uh, and I was listening to a podcast, as I do, on the way to school, and they did. They said if you're writing pure erotica, then people don't want a story. They don't want a story at all. They just want the action. But if you're writing mm. a romance erotica, and as Amy and now yourself say, it's all in an emotional context and the story is still at the forefront. So I wanted to clarify that, everybody, because um, this woman has so many beautiful books. Um, the picture on, on her, um, what do you call it, website is, is quite mm. erotic, um, but it's also very, very romantic. And the um, website is in black and white, which, which intrigues me because it looks so classy and classic. Um, now, Thank you, you. Yeah, you came up with that? I did. Yeah. And yeah. Yep. Sorry. Keep going. So again, I did have a look at a lot of the romance erotica authors that I admire, but but I think so, and particularly like Sylvia Day and Meredith Wilde, you know. But I think my website is very different to theirs in the end. But that was sort of my progression when I was styling it. Yeah, and these are the decisions that you've had to make as an indie. You've got all your books out there. You've done all your – I noticed you've got a newsletter. And I think what attracted me to you was the new cover of your new romance novel coming out with, with Harlequin. Uh, did mm -hmm. you get a say in the covers with them or have you lost some of that autonomy that you've had as an indie? Yeah, I again, that's a learning process for me. So I uh, I don't have a say in the covers, but I completely trust them. I, they are the market leader in romance, so I'm very happy to they, – they want my book to do well. They want all their author's books to do well, so they're going to give it its best chance as they see it. So I'm, I'm really happy. It's actually been lovely to pass that over to them and see what they come up with. Uh, and I still have the fun of doing my own covers and I do my own covers for my indie work so I get to choose my own couples and, and you know, work out what the covers are going to be. Yeah, and it probably frees up some time for you. I should imagine um, being able to pass off some of the business of an indie writer would be just a relief. Yeah, it is and it's it's lovely to wake up and sort of see that a book's gone live on a website and um, I'm not very good at the business side of being an indie writer. You know, I'm I'm a writer and I it's it, I think if you let it, the business side could take over and you have to be smart and you have to be savvy. But, uh, for example, I've pulled about seven books out of the Amazon Lending Library with the intention of going on to wider market because my first wider market book was a number two bestseller on iTunes. I thought, oh, goodness gracious, there's this whole market I haven't tapped because I've been sitting squarely with Amazon. Well, I pulled them out of the lending library about five months ago and haven't put them onto iTunes because it takes time and I don't have that much time. And what I do, I spend reading or writing or listening to your podcast now while I'm cooking. <laughs> yeah, and everybody, I am getting uh, someone on. Who am I getting on? Oh, I'm getting someone on about virtual assistants and I've already yeah. teed it up with her and you think I can remember her name. But anyway, we have virtual assistants coming up because we all want one. We want someone to do all that business stuff so that it can free up our time to do the parts that we love. And I think that's something that we learn. Businessmen for years have hired secretaries and assistants to do all the stuff that frees them up to be the creatives that they are that drives the business forward. Here we are mm. trying to do it all ourselves. More and more people are waking up to the fact we actually need secretaries and assistants to oh. do that everyday stuff so that it frees us up to do what we're best at. I need one just to do my day-to-day houseworky kind of admin and pay the bills and, you know, remind me when things are due and what I need at the shops. And But we, I am in the process actually of bringing someone on board to help me just uh, probably a day a week initially I'll see how it works out it's it's hard I think the hard problem for me is finding the right person because I'm so protective of what I do and it's so much a reflection of me but with things I do now need someone to help with the business side so yeah. I've got to bite the bullet there yeah I'm very lucky I've got my daughter and she keeps threatening to leave home on me and I'm saying you can't go you've got to stay uh, and if you do leave I'm coming with you uh, that's the way it works in our family you have mother will travel uh, uh, now one last question I just wanted to very quickly touch on 
Um, you write 14,000 words, not every day, I know. Um, 2,000 is def definitely a day. Uh, what about, if you, we're kicking into Dragon Dictation, and I've got someone coming on to talk to us about that. I think, I remember his name. I think it was Adam Scott or Scott someone. Uh, it's got the word Scott in it. Are you looking at Dragon Dictation, or are you going to keep um, risking the RSI thing? Yeah, so definitely not for me. I can see the benefits to it. And oh, someone, who is it? that Was it Barbara Cartland who used to dictate all her books? But for me, I, you know, I think you engage a different part of your brain when you're speaking to when you're writing. And I definitely find the typing a really uh, integral part to my getting my creative ideas out. Yeah. And, look, I've tried it and I tried it on the way to school and other than concentrating on the road instead of my story um yeah. i do find that when i look at it i've got i've got a different um style happening in that it's a talking style other than a rather than a thinking style so when i write yeah. i think and obviously when i talk i don't which is something that i now learnt about myself not not attractive everybody especially when i'm doing podcasts um <laughs> but handing over to you is a really good way of getting around that i get my guests to do all the talking for me <laughs> now you blog prolifically as well uh, no, I'm pretty peripatetic with my blog, I would have to say, and I am also with my newsletter. I'm, I'm really bad with that stuff. That's why I need help. I need help. I, I blog. I don't like to just blog about my books, and so I blog randomly when things occur to me, Or, but I probably average a blog a month if that. Yeah, I'm, I'm very proud of you. Blogs are, are the bane of everybody's lives, and so are newsletters. Yeah. And then I've got to think, will, yeah. They are. And I think Facebook has made it so easy for us. I, I have, you know, a good following on Facebook and I really enjoy connecting with them. And also I can schedule my content so I can have a two hour session where maybe my husband and I are watching a movie and I just schedule a year's worth of posts so that I know that every couple of weeks something's going to pop up. And I, that's just that's I find that a lot easier than the newsletter or whatever. Did you just say your husband and your downtime was you sitting in front of a computer <laughs> watching a movie while you schedule you? Your... <laughs> well, wow. Yeah, I know that's a bit tragic, isn't it? And like I said, he's very understanding. <laughs> <laughs> we've, got to, we've got to get a husband on here, everybody. We've got to talk to a husband of a writer and we could call it a day in the life of surviving a writing um, wife. <laughs> Yeah, but you know, and again, I'm really terrible with remembering who who people are. But it's some 19th century male writer who used to go up into his writing turret, and when inspiration took him, and there he would sit while the the muse was in session, and he would write and he would write and he would write, and his wife would keep the children quiet and occasionally send up, you know, cups of tea. I think, yeah, well, that that would be really nice actually. But I'm still I'm up packing school lunch boxes after I've written my two thousand words and jamming them into backpacks and getting kids out the door and you know it's life goes on around the I have to squeeze my writing into the gaps still even though I do it full time yeah now that's amazing everybody um in my day mum used to say get outside and don't come back till it's dark but we're not allowed to do that anymore it's called child abuse um and I did notice on your Facebook which I had a very quick scroll, uh, scroll through um you had something about um your son's teaching a tell telling him not to read or something I thought are we bizarre oh. Yeah, look, I've been trying to make sense of this. So what it was, he is reading this series of books called Beast Quest, which are aimed at – it's really interesting. They're written by someone – or they're written under the nom de plume, Adam Blade, but it's actually about 40 people who write them. So I'm not sure how that works, if the publishing house owns the concept and employs people or – anyway, there's 110 of these books. And when I was growing up, having a series of books like that was just the stuff of dreams because, as you know – I'm obsessive and I like to really – that's a childhood trait, obviously. Anyway, my son loves them and he doesn't read confidently but my husband reads them with him at night. So he went to his school library to borrow the next one in the series and the librarian asked what grade he was in. He's only in grade one. And she said, no, you're too, uh, you're too young to be reading novels. Yeah. And I, I questioned her on it and she was quite insistent that the content was inappropriate and I thought, wow, that's interesting. Yeah, I remember my daughter, my, oh, Sam, everyone knows Sam, um, she was banned from the senior library. She was in kindy year one and year two, and she wasn't mm. allowed gravitate to the senior novels, which was grade three and above, until she was in grade three. And it was the, there was a clear demarcation, um, which we felt was very bizarre even then. The fact that they're still doing it is even more. Buy him a little e-reader and let him download them. 
Oh, well, we went to the public library and the librarian was just what you think a librarian should be. And, and to my mind, a librarian is the gatekeeper to this wonderful world that if, especially with little boys, you know, there is evidence that suggests little boys aren't as prone to enjoy reading generally. So my feeling was certainly if you've got a little boy coming in before school wanting to borrow a book from the grade two section, you'll just let him. You know, it's. It, I felt really surprised. But the public librarian was wonderful. So there's 110 of the things. I, I, we can't buy them all for him. They take, you know, a week to read. And, um, yeah, I'm interested in that. That it, it, it. That's exactly what it is. They kind of graduate you up through the library as you get older. Yeah, it's a, it's a crazy system. <clears throat> we want yeah. all the kids to read that we can from, from here on in. Um, now, Claire, I'm going to let you go because I, I did sidetrack you down there, I know, but I, I'm very interested in kids and reading and I do I do get yeah. away with it. Uh, I, I know what I want to say and it's not coming out of my mouth. What's next for Claire? Sure. So more of the same. Um, in addition to the women's fiction, which I'm really just absolutely loving, um, just I just love to write. So more books. All right, and you'll be here in Brisbane for the Romance Writers Conference. Yes, I will be in taking part actually in a uh, a panel which is led by Amy Andrews, and it's on self publishing. So, and I'll also be doing a roundtable on self-publishing, which I have to say I don't feel like I'm particularly any kind of authority on, but it is. Uh, I love to talk to people about it, and, and I hope to give people confidence to just, if you've written a book that you would like to read, then find a way to get it out there. Yeah, and I think I think that's what we're all about here. Um, that's certainly what we're about at Writer on the Road. Um, my my next little while is taken up everyone with um, thirty days of blogging with a little course at the end to get you started um, on your mm. writing journey and to say that everyone's got a story to tell. Um, you've certainly got an amazing story to tell. Not all of us will have forty three books and a million downloads in in three years, um, but we will all make our mark in some way, and we've got these beautiful excuse me but all these beautiful people like um claire and amy and look there's a thousand other women out there annie seaton i could name a dozen uh, mm. who are there to help you um if you're at all interested in in writing romance um because that's what we blather on about all the time please join up to the rwa um newsletter or join up to them they they're a fantastic organization all voluntary mm. Uh, and yeah, and they they put these conferences together every year that are well worth attending. And you can always go up and say, "Oh, hi, Claire. How are you? How are the kids?" Uh, <laughs> uh, now, where can we find you? So I am online at clairconnolly.com. Very, very straightforward. That's how I found her myself. Uh, plus, on Facebook, where I found out about her son's reading habits. Uh, <laughs> I, I thank you for your generosity today. We all wish you all the best with your with your new releases, with the new one coming out in July. We'll put that in in the um, notes at the end of the show today. Four more coming out in the next little while, every every few months, and we look forward, uh, Claire, to seeing your first women's fiction. I'm sure it'll be a bigger success, like everything else that you've written. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, isn't she beautiful, everybody? That smile. Thank you very much. That's another uh, episode of Rider on the Road, and um, we'll see you next week. Bye for now. Bye.